Thank you for choosing to listen to the sermons of the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ. We meet at 2309 9th Avenue in Haleyville, Alabama. And if you're ever in our area, we would love to have you as our guest. If you live in our area, we would love to study the Bible with you. You can call us anytime to study up a Bible study or just to gain more information at 205-486-9247. Also, visit our website, 9thAvenueCofC.com, or check us out on Facebook by simply searching for 9th Avenue Church of Christ. Now we hope you'll join us for a study of God's Word as we seek to follow Him each and every day from the Ninth Avenue Church of Christ in Haleyville, Alabama. If you have never taken the time to read the entire Declaration of Independence, it's not a very long thing, but if you've never taken the time to read it, you may not realize that a bulk of that document is a list of grievances that the Founding Fathers had against the King of England at that time, King George III. He's not doing this. He doesn't allow that. He's put these things upon us. And on and on and on it goes for a massive percentage of that document. And so it shows us that those founding fathers did not just, they didn't like the idea, at least some of them didn't, of living under a monarch. Now, you know, if you study revolutionary history, that some wanted to be independent, but maybe set up their own monarchy here in America. But over time, we realized that that's not what we wanted. We wanted a different kind of government, a different kind of system. And I think most of us would say we're very thankful that we don't live under an earthly monarch. But on the other side of that same coin, we need to be very, very thankful that when it comes to our spiritual lives, we are in a kingdom. We are in a spiritual kingdom. And the reason that's very important for us is because, as we've been seeing tonight, we have the greatest of all kings. Our one word for this week is the word kingdom. If you've been using the books, the uh, devotional books this year, you'll notice that the devotionals for this week, the word kingdom, were written by David Shannon. At the time uh, he wrote these, David preached for uh, the Mount Juliet Church of Christ just outside of Nashville. He's actually now the the new president of Frieder Harbor University. But I tell you that to tell you that it was actually... David's idea for the entire one word thing. It was an idea way back in the recess of his mind about two and a half years ago that some other guys got wind of and he kind of ran by a few friends and all of a sudden here we are uh, studying this all this time later and reading some devotionals that he came up with. But the idea of having the word kingdom as one of our words may seem a little bit strange with all these other things we've been thinking about this year. But that said, it's obviously a biblical term, and it's one that we need to both understand and we need to appreciate. First of all, we need to understand it, because a lot of people in the religious world will tell you that kingdom is not something we really think about yet. See, there's so many religious world who hold to a teaching. You have a very, very simplified chart of it on the screens before you. The idea of premillennialism, before you get all the big words, don't, don't worry about the big words, but... At its core, one of the tenets of that particular teaching is that we are not in, they say, a kingdom now. The idea is that Christ came when he came the first time to earth to set up a literal earthly kingdom sitting on David's throne in the city of Jerusalem 
But the Jews, the ones who were supposed to know all this, rejected him, in fact, to the point of putting him on a cross. And so the idea behind this teaching is, as sort of a backup plan, I've heard it, I think, very well described as a stopgap measure, God put in place the church, and so we are now in the church age, and at some point in the future, Christ will return to the earth again, and will literally sit on David's throne in the city of Jerusalem for a thousand years, thus millennial, and then eventually Christ will take every, take the faithful home and so on and so forth. Most of your and my religious friends believe this. It is a very common teaching. There may be slight differences in how it all plays out, but it is a very common teaching. It's why you hear so many thoughts about the millennium with so many of your religious friends. It is a very common te- teaching. I hope you were here for our gospel meeting recently. You may remember on the last night of that meeting, Brother Jay Lockhart mentioned just one verse from the Old Testament that literally destroys this entire teaching, this entire theory from the prophet Jeremiah, that Jeremiah had said that the throne of David, that, that royal line, it would never be fulfilled in joy again, never be filled to uh, its fullness again. But there are other passages in the New Testament that also refute this idea. One comes from a very famous saying from the lips of Jesus himself. In Matthew chapter 16, you'll recall that Jesus is predicting the coming of the church. And he tells Peter, when Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God, he said, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock, this confession, this bedrock truth, I will build my church, and the gates of hell, or Hades, will not prevail against it. And in the very next breath, he says, and I will give to you the keys of the kingdom. Speaking of the same thing, the church and kingdom are used synonymously by our Lord. But there's another passage that makes this even more clear. If you have your New Testament tonight, turn to the book of Colossians chapter 1. And I want you to see this for yourself, if you've never noticed this, this context before. The book of Colossians is, its theme has the idea of the supremacy of Christ. If you want to know how to exalt Christ, then read that little four chapter book. But notice what Paul writes in the middle of the very first chapter of Colossians, chapter 1, beginning in verse 11. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance Of the saints in his light. He, now who is the he? This is God. God the Father, notice the tense, has, past tense. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred, past tense, us to the kingdom of his beloved son. In whom we have, present tense, redemption, the forgiveness of sins. If we are not living in the kingdom, if the kingdom has not come yet, then how could Paul write that God has translated us or transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son? And in that kingdom is where we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom and the church are one and the same. We are in the kingdom. There is no future earthly kingdom The kingdom of God is right here. It is the church, and we need to understand that. But for the remainder of our time tonight, I also want us to think about the fact that we need to appreciate that. Knowing that the church 
and the kingdom are one and the same. What is true about a kingdom that is true about the church? And so tonight, for the remainder of our time, what I want to do is is begin a list. And I use that word intentionally. There's no way in the time, unless you really want to be here, you know, for four, five, six days, that we could exhaust a list of trying to give all the ways in which the church is like a kingdom. So what I want to do tonight is just begin a list and give you four things. Four things that are true about kingdoms that are true about the church. And they all should help us build an appreciation for this wonderful thing. In the first place, and most obviously, kingdoms have kings. And you may think, boy, I'm glad he spent all week coming up with that one. Kingdoms have kings. And that may seem terribly obvious, but it's a point that has to be made. A kingdom is ruled by someone. Just in recent weeks, there's been a little ripple in some of the international news about one of the remaining family monarchies in the world. You may have seen it make the news that the king of Saudi Arabia, where there's, it's a family autocratic monarchy. But just a few weeks ago, that king announced that the new crown prince would not be one of his sons. It was going to skip generations and it made all kinds of news. But still, kingdoms have these things they have to work through. If this happens to the king or the queen, who's going to be the next in line? All these things have to be figured out because you don't have a monarchy. You don't have a kingdom without someone ruling and reigning over it. The church, of course has a king, and we've sung about him so well tonight. It is Jesus the Christ. Turn to Revelation chapter 17. Now, I know that Revelation is a difficult book. There's a lot of poetic language, a lot of symbolic language, but that's not to stop us from seeing some of the simple principles that are laid out in the midst of some of these difficult pictures and visions. And in Revelation 17, you have one of them. In that chapter, as you're turning there, there's a picture of a a great prostitute or a great harlot and a beast who make war... That our point to not is not try to figure out what all that means. Okay, the point we're trying to notice is down in Revelation chapter 17 and verse 14, where we're told that these make war with the lamb. Now, you can go to any commentary over here in our church library about the book of Revelation, and you will not find disagreement about who the lamb is. You may find some disagreement about the other things in this chapter, but you will not find any disagreement. This is Christ. And what does Revelation seventeen fourteen say? They will make war on or with the lamb and the lamb will conquer them for watch it now. For he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And those with him are called and chosen and faithful. Notice the tense. He is Lord of Lords and King of Kings. We don't have to understand everything about Revelation chapter 17, all those symbols. But the question is this. If there is not now a kingdom, then how could John in this vision all the way back in the first century say that Jesus is King of Kings? Not he will be. Not of the future it might happen. Jesus is our King. Just as a kingdom must have a monarch, so the church has a king, and the king is Jesus. But I would also suggest to you that kingdoms have citizens. Pardon the grammar, but no king rules over no people. Okay? Kings and queens have to have citizens. There has to be people to make up the kingdom. Did you know there's a kingdom in our world today named Tavalara? I didn't either until I was getting ready for this lesson. That, that name may not ring a bell. You're not going to find it on the United Nations roll, okay? It's actually a portion of Italy. But the Italian government allows them to have their own king. This is him. Antonio Bertoglioni, the king of Tavalara. 
I never heard of this guy until just a few days ago. By the way, he also owns the only restaurant in his kingdom. Who are his citizens? Who are his subjects? Well, other than he and his family, he rules over 11 part-time citizens. On a little strip of land by a beach on a small island south of Sardinia that the Italian government allows him to rule over at that time. It's not a bad gig if you can get it. Be king over 11 people and run your own restaurant. Not a bad thing. But no matter how many people there are, large or small, it proves the point that kingdoms have citizens. That passage we read a few moments ago from Colossians chapter 1 was written to Christians. And do you remember what he said? Paul said he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son. Those who are in the church are in the kingdom. We are citizens of the heavenly kingdom, which is the church. Paul would write that in other places as well. More famously, he would say in Philippians 3 and verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 2 verses 19 and 20, Paul again said, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. Now, it being true that there are citizens in the kingdom, it implies there's a way to become a citizen. In the United States, I know we're not a monarchy, but there's a way to become a citizen, right? Some, some of us are born citizens. We can also immigrate, take a test, and do other things in order to gain citizenship. We talk about that path to citizenship. If we wish to become a citizen in the kingdom of Christ, there are also requirements. And it's interesting that it's a combination of those two things. Not that we are physically born into the kingdom, but the Bible does describe us becoming members of that kingdom as a birth, does it not? But it requires certain things for that birth. We follow that, if you please, path to citizenship. Our Lord adds us to his church. And Jesus himself would describe it as being born again or born from above in John chapter 3. And so we follow God's plan for citizenship in his kingdom. And we follow that plan. We are born anew into his kingdom. And at that point, we are citizens of his kingdom. Our citizenship is no longer here, spiritually speaking. It is in the kingdom of heaven. A third thing that's true about kingdoms is that kingdoms have laws. And for a lot of people, this is where things begin to break down. Some people will say, I don't mind the idea of Jesus being a leader, maybe even Jesus being a king. And some people don't mind the concept of there being citizenship in the kingdom, the, the church. But when you start reminding people that when there's a king, there are also laws that need to be followed. That's not very popular to think about. We start to chafe at that in our society. We don't like to be told what to do. And too many automatically think that laws and rules, especially these old laws way back there in the Bible, that they're just arbitrary or they're just burdensome. And so a lot of people push back against the idea of there being any laws or rules that we are to follow as citizens of the kingdom. You know, there are a lot of people who think that God had laws in the Old Testament 
But that the New Testament is nothing more than just grace. God doesn't really, really expect us to follow any specific set of things, any patterns today. Now, it is true that there are some differences between the Old Testament or the Old Law and the New Testament or the New Law. But a lot of that is simply because the law of Moses was a national or a civic law. It didn't just have religious laws. It had ceremonial laws. It even had things about hygiene and warfare and all sorts of things uh, that cover the entirety of the nation. But there are scads of laws. And if all we ever see are the laws, we've missed the point. It wasn't just do this and don't do that. You read through a book like Leviticus, and it's thou shalt and thou shalt not over and over and over and over again. But it always, always points to the idea of holiness and purity. To keep the people holy and pure because they were to be representing and serving a holy and pure God. It was not just do this arbitrarily or don't do that arbitrarily. But because you don't specifically see words like thou shalt and thou shalt not as often in the New Testament, people begin to think that God will just overlook anything or at least most things. And so there's not really any law anymore. But people who feel that way have never really read the New Testament, or at least not with the right mindset. There are commands, there are, if you please, laws that we are still to follow. Many of them come from the lips of our king himself. Jesus himself said, I tell you, unless you repent, you all likewise perish. Now that does not say thou shalt or thou shalt not. But it also does not read like a suggestion, does it? It reads like something that must be done. Jesus said, Mark 16, 16, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. That's not just an idea. That's not just a concept. That's a command given by the king. He said in Mark 9 and verse 50, be at peace with one another. If that's not written as just a suggestion, it's written as a command from the king. And for the remainder of the New Testament, you, you know as well as I do, it's really filled with commands, filled with laws. And while they may not say thou shalt or thou shalt not, God expects them, Christ expects them to be followed. Just by way of one example among dozens we could name, listen to the words of Ephesians 4, verses 25 through 32, and listen to how many commands are found in that one paragraph. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. There's a command. For we are all members of one another. Be angry, command, and do not sin. Those two tied together. Do not let the sun go down your anger. And give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. When I am studying that passage tonight, but you listen to that and you read that. And how many commands are found in one paragraph? There's tons of them. Those are not just suggestions They are things the king commands of his citizens. 
But some people begin to push back at that idea because this is an old book, an old thing. That They may look at the, these laws, these laws of Christ, but when they don't agree or they don't understand, they say, well, it's just too hard or it's just confusing or it's outdated or it's just arbitrary. You know, there are some laws even still on the books in our nation that are pretty bizarre. Some of you have seen these things before where you start looking at laws that have never been taken off the books. They're really old laws from, from days gone by, and they've never specifically been taken off the books. And you read them and you go, is this really a problem? For example, if you were to live in the state of Arizona, did you know there's still a law on the books in that state that says that it is illegal for a donkey to sleep in a bathtub? Now, what I want to know is when was this ever really a problem? I grew up in the state of Missouri. And I am very, very thankful to have grown up in a state where it is illegal to ride in a car with an uncaged bear. That is still on the books in that state. And by the way, it's also true in the state in which we live that we have some weird laws because in the state of Alabama, it is illegal to wear a fake mustache that causes laughter during church. Who thought of this? Why was this a problem? And why was this a law? But the law has never been rescinded. So we're watching you. Because some of you all will show up Wednesday night. I know you. And we have lawmen in the room. But some people see commands in the Bible. And they say those commands are just as bizarre. They're just as outdated. They're, they're just as weird. And we don't have to follow those things. They're ridiculous, some people say. But those of us who understand that God is our creator, understand that while we may not fully grasp the reason behind some of his commands, over time we understand they're for our betterment. They're for our peace. They're for human flourishing. And that's why John could write, By this we know that we love the children of God, whom we love God and obey his commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. And here it is. And his commandments are not burdensome. The old King James has are not grievous. The word literally means heavy in weight. Now, that does not mean that following God is always easy. That's not what it means. But it means that when we give ourselves to fully following the commands of God, those commands don't weigh us down. We will not always understand, but we'll obey because we know that God sees the bigger picture. In a kingdom, there are laws to be followed. And number four, kingdoms also have ambassadors. Nations and send representatives to, to other nations or to groups in order to, to keep lines of communication going, to, to work out agreements and treaties. And those ambassadors are still citizens of, of the nation they're representing, their home nation, but they live in another nation or another place, at least for a time, in order to do some good as a representative. No matter what type of government it is, ambassadors are sent to other nations or organizations like the United Nations or NATO to represent that country's best interest. Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Because in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we are told that is exactly what Christians are in the kingdom of Christ and of God. Read with me in that chapter, 2 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation or creature. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now pause there just for a second. Paul is writing to some who are in Christ. 
Now, we know that means that they are Christians because one is baptized into Christ, puts on Christ. Romans chapter 6 tells us that, verses 1 through 4. We have, then Paul says, the same ministry as God through Christ. The ministry of reconciliation, bringing people back. That's our ministry. Now, with that in mind, keep reading, beginning in verse 19. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Did you notice what Paul was saying? As ambassadors, we are not calling people to ourselves. We're not calling people to our way of life, to the way we might see the world. We are representing the kingdom. We're representing God. And so we call people to think about the goodness of the king and the laws of King Jesus. Like ambassadors today, we live in a foreign land. How often do we sing songs like, this world is not my home? Or here we are, but straying pilgrims. But we're showing people where where we live has the greatest wonders of them all. Like those of Hebrews chapter 11, we acknowledge that we are strangers and exiles on the earth. Hebrews 11 and verse 13. While we may have a, an earthly citizenship here, our true citizenship is in heaven. But more than that, we are ambassadors for the message of God. And it's not so people will say, look how wonderful we are. But look how wonderful our king is. The kingdom is here. The kingdom is the church. And as such, we need to honor our king. And we need to understand and live those words we just quoted a moment ago. This world is not my home. I'm just passing through. May I ask, are you living that way? Are you living in such a way that honors King Jesus? Are you following the laws of his kingdom? Are you an ambassador for him? Telling all those around you with the ministry of reconciliation, be reconciled to God and look at the wonders of my homeland. May I ask, are you even a citizen of his kingdom? The amazing thing about our king is that not only did he lay out the way for us to become citizens, he gave himself so we could. He didn't just write a law and say, you follow it. He said, I'll pay the price if you'll simply come. That's our king. And it's no wonder we can be grateful to say, he's my king. And oh, I dearly love him. Tonight, when we sang that song, were you singing the truth? Is he really your king? And are you living your life in such a way that shows you do really love him? If you've never come to him, he is king. He makes the laws. And so he said that we must believe on him. He said we must turn from sin, repent. He said we must confess him as Lord and as Savior. And the king is the one who said that we must be baptized, immersed in water for the forgiveness of our sins. That's what the king says. Have you done that? For those of us who have, are you living in such a way that honors that king? Are you living in such a way where people know that's not a citizen of this world, that's a citizen of the next world? They're not living for here, they're living for there. Their king isn't here, their king is there. Would anybody know that by the way you're living? Maybe not. And maybe tonight you need to repent or seek encouragement to do better in the future. 
The king paid the price. The king set the laws. And the benevolent king will call us home one day if we're faithful. And tonight, if that's your wish, and if you would like to make things right with the Lord in the way he's prescribed, will you come while we stand and sing to encourage you?